All right, we are going to be in Second Peter today. Now, when you came in, you got a packet, three pages of stuff. It's not going to take that long. Second uh, Peter is three short chapters. Uh, we're going to do two books today, actually. We're going to do Second Peter and Jude. And we're going to do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, they're both very short. Jude is just one chapter. And Second Peter is three short chapters. So there's not a lot of content as far as the amount of it to cover. And secondly, Second Peter and Jude are very similar in their content. So if you talk about one, you're basically talking about the other as well. So we might as well go ahead and cover those uh, together this morning. So we're going to start in Second Peter. We left off with First Peter uh, last week. Peter wrote to the elect exiles who were dispersed throughout uh, Asia Minor. We said these were primarily Gentile believers in Gentile churches, although there uh, are obviously Jewish people among them. And that they're on the verge of suffering a great persecution. As we've seen with most of the New Testament, that's the theme. God's people suffering persecution in the world and how they are to respond to that, how they are to live in the midst of that in the world. And what primarily we're going to be talking about today in Second Peter and Jude is the context of false prophets and false teachers. If it's not the, the suffering and the persecution the churches are going through, then it's the influence of false teachers. We have seen that in the book of Colossians. We have seen that in the book of Galatians. Uh, we've seen that in Thessalonians. Uh, so these are two of the primary uh, things that are coming against this early church, and that is persecution from the Jews and eventually from the Romans, and false teachers that either are coming from the outside in or are inside that are trying to affect the believers in the church, such as we saw in First and Second Timothy. Well, in Second Peter and Jude, we're back to the narrative of the false teachers. So let's start in Second um, Peter, and we're going to look on our paper here and go through our uh, data for Second Peter. Second uh, Peter serves as a farewell speech. Uh, Peter is knowing his time is drawing near for him to depart. We've seen similar language with Paul when he knew his time was coming to an end. And Peter doesn't expect to be around very much longer. He says in verse 14 of chapter 1, Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. So he knows his time is drawing near, and Second Peter is kind of his last farewell speech to these believers in these churches. It is sent as a letter urging Christian growth and perseverance in the light of false teachers. Now, there are two primary aspects of these false teachers, and we see that here in the, con in the content section. They scoff at the imminency of the coming of Christ. They scoff at the notion of coming judgment. And secondly, they live boldly in sin. So these are the two characteristics of the false teachers that they'll be explaining on. Uh, the author of Second Peter is, of course, uh, Peter. He mentions in chapter 3, this is his second letter that he is writing. Um, there are always scholars and people that will you know, question the authorship, um, but I'm pretty confident that 
This is a letter from Peter. Uh, the date is probably the mid-60s, around 64 A.D. And uh, it, it doesn't specify who, what group this is being written to, uh, but it's naturally assumed because Peter makes mention that this is his second letter that is written to the same group of people as First Peter is written to. The occasion of the letter is a desire to establish the readers in their own faith and godly living while warning them of the false teachers and their way of life. The emphasis is God's people should live godly, the sure judgment on the false teachers for their ungodly living, the certainty of the Lord's coming. Uh, the word there is the word parousia, and it literally means presence, and the Lord's presence appearing uh, with judgment despite scoffing by the false teachers. And as we talk about, um, you know, this coming of the Lord and this issue of judgment, that certainly that is a great debated topic in the New Testament. Because we obviously, when we talk about the coming of the Lord and things of that nature, we have an end-of-the-world type mindset, you know, even in our future. And of course, we would have that because of the language here. But what is interesting and what makes it a little more difficult is these letters, of course, were all written to literal churches and literal people who were living in the first century. And every New Testament writer believed that something was coming very soon. Everyone expected it within their lifetime. Uh, so when Peter is writing, there will be scoffers in the last days, he's talking about the days he's living in, that there were scoffers then, in their day. Um, none of the New Testament writers spoke of a coming judgment or a coming of the Lord as being thousands and thousands of years in the future. And that's what makes this a little difficult. So either uh, they truly believed that the coming of the Lord, that any type of judgment you know, was going to happen in their lifetime, and they believed the coming of the Lord was soon for them, you know, and they were a little bit mistaken, which that should make us a little uneasy, because if they were mistaken about that, you know, what else were they mistaken about? Um, but there is no doubt, and we've looked at it in Timothy, we've, I mean, in, in uh, Thessalonians, we've looked at it in Paul's writings, and we see it here in Peter and Jude. Every New Testament writer expected the coming of the Lord, or some event, the day of the Lord, to happen within their lifetime. And the interesting thing is, the more you, you read, if you put the books of the Bible in chronological order of when they were written, the language becomes more and more imminent. We'll see next week when we get into John. John writes, little children, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. Uh, so John believed that there was something on the horizon very soon that he's warning his writers about. So that's why there's, you know, a little bit of, you know, trying to figure out exactly what this is talking about. You know, were they truly expecting the coming of Christ in their lifetime? Um, it does not seem that their, their intent is to talk to an audience thousands of years into the future because the language and just the warnings that they give the Christians, the warning against the false teachers as they see these days approaching, how the church then is supposed to live, um, they, there's definitely a sense of, of imminence. Um, the greatest event in the first century to happen was the, the Roman wars with the Jews and the Roman persecution and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Um, so a lot of people point to that because that was an imminent event that happens. You know, other people would disagree because uh, of the language that is used. They read more literal language. So, you know, we're not 100% sure of, you know, every intent of what is writing. 
Um, even when he mentions scoffers will come in the last days. What is the last days? You know, last week was the last days of June. Um, you know, Paul said, upon us have come the ends uh, of, of the ages. Uh, so what are the last days? Some people, obviously there's the last days of humanity. There's the last days before the destruction of Jerusalem, the last days of the old covenant. Uh, so what is the last days? Uh, we have to uh, try to identify that context. But regardless of what view uh, of it, he's definitely warning about the coming of Christ, and the coming of Christ has to do with judgment. The day of the Lord uh, is often a term used. The day of the Lord was usually a time of judgment upon the ungodly or ungodly nations, or even Israel itself breaking the covenant. Uh, that judgment would come upon them. The day of the Lord is like a two-sided coin. There's judgment on one side for the unrighteous, but there's salvation for the righteous. So it's a day of judgment and a day of salvation. Uh, so to the false teachers here, Peter's writing about a time of judgment. But to the believers, he's encouraging them to live holy and to live righteously and godly, that they will experience salvation and not come under any impending judgment. So uh, no matter what the exact context, whether it's something imminent in their day or it's something to come in the future, the point is still the same. So the point is what we're going to look at today, and that is uh, obviously the warning to the false teachers and how the believers are supposed to live, and they're to live godly lives. So where there's, where there's confusion, I always try to look for what's the plain message, and we have the plain message uh, here in the text of what is going on. So as we move through Second Peter um, in our overview on our first page of our paper, the letter is in four parts, and I'm not going to read through all of this, uh, but the letter is in four parts. Part one starts in chapter one and goes through verse number 11. This is talking about their exhortation to growth in godliness, that they have been giving great and precious promises in God's word. They've been made partakers of the divine nature. Uh, God has given them everything for life and godliness. And then they're to take everything God has given us and to walk in it and to grow in their faith. Part two is verses 12 through 21 of chapter one. And this is where Peter mentions his farewell, where Peter mentions his time is short. And he speaks about the witnesses of Christ. And when you read, especially verses 16 through 21, you read that there are three witnesses. The apostolic witness that the apostles spoke about. Then there was the word from God. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Peter mentions that they were eyewitnesses of this. And then he appeals to the Old Testament prophecy. A more sure word of prophecy. That what the false prophets were teaching now was not the word of God. What they were teaching at this time was not a more sure word. So he says, you have the word these false prophets are teaching, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. Going back to the Old Testament prophets, going to the witness of the apostles, going back to the word of God spoken over Jesus. So that's what he talks about in part two there. In part three, we go to chapter two, and all of chapter two is talking about the false prophets. And it's describing their lifestyle, it's describing the, you know, how their judgment is coming upon them. 
And it uses very colorful language. And Peter doesn't mix any words. He doesn't make anything obscure in chapter 2 when he is talking about the danger of these false prophets. And then the fourth part is chapter 3 of 2 Peter. And this exposes and argues against the teaching of the false prophets. Those who were scoffing at the notion of the coming of the Lord. Because one of the things Jesus speaks about, Paul speaks about in Thessalonians, as they see the day approaching, is God's people are to be sober, they're to be watchful. They're to be sober and they're to be watchful. And they are to live in the manner of the imminency of the coming of the Lord. And that's a characteristic that Jesus teaches his disciples. And in Matthew 24, he teaches them, you know, about their stewardship, about watching. And he uses parables in Matthew 25, you know, about the ten virgins and being ready. And, you know, you know not what hour your Lord will come. And he uses all of this language that they are to watch and be ready. And as they watch and are ready, they are to live in a certain way, in a godly way, in a holy way. Now, the false teachers don't do that. They scoff at the, at the coming of the Lord. They scoff at any coming judgment, and they say, you know, well, nothing's going to happen to us. Everything's been the same since the world started, so we're just going to, to live however we want to live. So chapter 3 of 1 Peter uh, argues against this false teaching. Um, as we look uh, deeper into our specific advice for reading, we see two concerns. Uh, that's, number one, the false teachers themselves. And number two, their denial. Or I would say their, the, the book uses denial, and I changed it in some places. I didn't get every place. But I, I don't believe it's so much a denial as it is a scoffing at it. Uh, their scoffing attitude at the coming of Christ, which is connected with coming judgment. Uh, the, the description of the false teachers in chapter 2 of Second Peter describes their immorality. Um, underneath it, they are scorned for their, they're scorned for their greed and their exploitation of other people, of those who are unsuspecting. Um, notice how those on the other side, the righteous, are supposed to live holy and godly lives as they eager await this coming of the Lord. And then, under specific advice, the certainty of the coming of Christ, which includes inevitable judgment, um, will be watching for the emphasis of the more sure word of prophecy. Again, the word of the false teachers as they are scoffing at this notion of judgment and this coming of the Lord. And then we have the more sure word of prophecy that Jesus himself talks about it. The apostles talked about it. The Old Testament prophets talked about it. So when in doubt, go with God's word that's been spoken before versus any you know, contemporary word that would uh, you know, come against the reliable word of God. So those are two of the major things to look at concerning Second Peter. As we go to the back of that page, um, we see our outline, and we'll just go through the outline. We're not going to do a lot of reading in the scriptures. Uh, we're just going to use our outline, uh, and you can kind of take that and read. We may mention a couple of things along the way. Um, but in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we have the salutation uh, from Peter, a servant and an apostle, uh, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing, uh, probably the same audience that he written to before. And then this follows our divisions in chapter 1, 3 through 11. Uh, the themes are stated, growing in godliness in the eternal kingdom. I do want to read some of this um, in Second Peter, beginning with verse 3, because um, these are very encouraging verses to us as believers. 
And 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is what God has given us in order to live godly lives. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. The partakers of the divine nature. You know, when I read that and I began to see that Christ in me is the hope of glory, I think a lot of our emphasis, I know that's the way I perceived it, you know, a lot of our emphasis was on our sinful nature, you know, and how bad we were and how prone to sin we were and how God was out to get us. And I remember saying to myself one day, after I became a preacher and I was studying this, nobody ever told me that I had a divine nature, that I was a partaker of the divine nature. I was always talking about my old sinful nature, my old sinful nature, my old sinful nature. But the Holy Spirit in us is our divine nature. And so I began to think maybe instead of always talking to people about their sinful, their old nature, what if we started teaching them about the divine nature, the Holy Spirit that is on the inside of them? And start feeding that side of us as the Holy Spirit and walking in the Spirit and living in the Spirit and speaking by the Holy Spirit. I believe that is a precious gift that God has given us. And to be spiritually minded, Romans says, is life and peace. So we want to focus more on the spiritual side of us and feeding that spiritual divine nature in us because he's made us partakers of the divine nature. And I think that's just an amazing, an amazing thought. Uh, Then he goes on to say in verse number five, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith and virtue or your faith with virtue and with virtue knowledge and with knowledge self-control and self-control steadfastness and steadfastness godliness and godliness brotherly affection and with brotherly affection love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. So Jesus has forgiven us of our sins and cleansed us so that we can live and grow in our faith and godliness and grace and begin to walk in the Holy Spirit and producing the fruits of the Spirit and growing in love and and godliness. Uh, So he tells them to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And for in this way, you will richly be provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he begins this letter of 2 Peter with who the believers are. And you have the Holy Spirit. You've been forgiven of your sins. Jesus has given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. So continue to live in that. Continue to grow in that. So he exhorts them in growing in godliness and the eternal kingdom. Uh, The next section we see Peter's last testament. We read earlier that uh, the putting off of his body is going to be very soon. So he's writing this. He says in verse 15 of chapter 1, And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So to call these things to their remembrance. Then in verses 16 through 21, he goes on to talk about the more sure word of prophecy. So notice how he's starting. He's starting grounding them in the truth. 
the truth of who they are and who they are called to be as believers in Christ, uh, and the truth of the witness of God and the witness of Jesus, that the apostles were eyewitnesses, that the word from heaven of God's approval of Jesus sounded out, and the more sure prophetic word. So before he talks about the false prophets in chapter 2, he's grounding them in the truth in chapter 1. So as we go into chapter 2, on our next slide, chapter 2, he begins with the indictment of the false teachers. So chapter 2 begins this way. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. That's basically, those three verses, that's basically uh, the heart and soul of what he's going to expound on in the rest of chapter 2. That false teachers will rise up among you. They will even deny the master. They'll bring in heresies. Uh, Many people will follow them. They will blaspheme the truth. Greed is at the core of who they are. So this indictment of the false teachers, that goes all the way through chapter 2. And you can read that, and he uses many illustrations. He goes back to the Old Testament. Uh, In fact, verse number 4, he goes on to talk about the angels, uh, that if God did not spare the angels that sinned, uh, then God will not spare these false teachers. So he uses all of these illustrations. He uses Sodom and Gomorrah uh, and several other illustrations about, the, um, about these false teachers to indict them. So that takes up all of chapter 2. And then all of chapter 3, again in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, the nature of the false teaching, scoffing at the Lord's coming. Um, on our paper it says this final section begins with another reference to prophecy. And he mentions that several times about the more sure word of prophecy and the scoffing at the Lord's coming. So let's read, let's begin reading in verse number three, chapter three, verse one. Chapter three of Second Peter, verse one. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this fact. Um, And then he goes on to talk about uh, the flood of Noah and the destruction that happened there in Noah. But the heart of this is they are living ungodly lives. The heart of this is that they desire to have people following them and they're leading people astray. The heart of this is their greed. And they're doing this on the basis of their scoffing at any impending judgment or any coming of Christ. So they're scoffing at that notion and continuing in their own wicked ways. Uh, And he goes on to say here that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, uh, that God has not delayed uh, his promises, but he's calling people to him calling people to him. So every day that we live as a church and bringing this, applying this to us, every day that we live, and it doesn't even have to talk about the end of the world or the second coming, every day a person lives is a day that God is long-suffering with them. That God is giving sinners another day and another chance 
to follow him and to turn their lives and to give their lives over to him. For he is patient and he's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Um, now I'll go down to verse 11 of Second Peter chapter 3. The last part, portion of chapter 3 is exhortations to perseverance. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 11 Since all these are thus to be dissolved, what what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? So that's, that's the whole crux of the matter for the believers. How should we live? And he tells us how we should live in holiness and godliness. Going back to chapter 1, here's how you should live. So, I mean, there's a lot of scriptures that we could point to and talk about and, you know, kind of pull out here. But the overall message is the same. That to guard against false prophecy, we go back to the sure word of God. We go back to the testimony of the apostles and the Old Testament prophets to see what they say about Christ. And that the apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus and we can believe their testimony. And that we should reject those that would scoff at at the coming judgment that want to just live their own lives in ungodliness, that we should not follow them, and that we should live, back then in the first century and now here, that we should live in a way that would bring holiness and godliness through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives on the inside of us, recalling back chapter 1. The book of Jude, or the letter of Jude, Um, Again, we're covering both of these letters because of how similar they are. So here's what you're going to find out, and and on our third paper, we'll look at that in a moment. But here's what we're going to find out about Jude. What Peter says about the false teachers and false prophets, Jude says the exact same things. The exact same things. You know, so they're probably talking about the same group of people in the church. So Jude is just... 24 short verses, uh, just one page right here in, in my Bible. But let's talk a little bit on our page for Jude. The content is a letter of exhortation full of strong warnings against false teachers who have secretly slipped in among the believers. Jude describes himself as the brother of James. Thus, Jude is the brother of Jesus. Uh, interestingly, Jude does not consider himself an apostle. Uh, He never mentions himself being an apostle. He doesn't even mention himself being the brother of Jesus Christ. He says he's the brother of James. Uh, We don't know when Jude was written. Probably around the same time that 2 Peter was written because of the context, because of the wording, uh, because of some of the illustrations that they use. They use the same illustrations. Uh, So it's probably written around the mid-60s, the same as 2 Peter Uh, The recipients are unknown. It just says, to those who are called, beloved of God, or beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So we don't know who they're written to. They were probably written to Jewish Christians, probably. Um, We don't know. Uh, The occasion, uh, the threat posed by uh, some itinerant false prophets who have turned grace into license and who has wormed their way who has crept in or slipped in to the church. The emphasis, uh, the certain judgment on those who live carelessly and teach others to do so, and the importance of holy living. 
God's love for and preservation of his faithful ones. So these are some of the emphasis in these 24 verses. Uh, the overview of Jude, Jude begins and ends on the note of God's call and preservation of his people. The body of the letter comes in two parts. Let me move my slide forward for those watching online. Uh, we'll get to the outline in just a moment. Um, it comes in two parts. Verses 3 through 19 is the warning against the false teachers. And verses 20 through 23 offer exhortations to perseverance. The warnings against the false teachers is sandwiched between the descriptions of their ungodly behavior. Again, at the root of their teaching is their ungodly behavior. And sometimes people will teach certain things in order to justify the way that they live. So here's what's happening. These false teachers are teaching falsely because they're trying to justify living ungodly. Uh, The specific advice for reading Jude Uh, The false teachers are the crucial matter. That's the majority of the letter. Um, Through reading it, we can piece together some things about them. First of all, they have been accepted within the community of Christians. Um, Were they actually Christians themselves or were they posing as Christians? Either way, they were accepted in the community as Christians. Uh, They participated in the life of the church. They participated in the love feast of the church. Um, They follow their mere instincts and not the spirit, verse 19 tells us. Their teaching uh, appears to be a form of uh, libertinism. They've perverted the gospel of God into a license for immorality, uh, which is not the intent of the gospel of God or the grace of God at all, but they've perverted the grace of God. They follow their own evil desires. Um, They pollute their own bodies the way that Sodom and Gomorrah does. They also reject authority and heap uh, abuse on celestial beings, verse 8. Grumblers and fault finders, verse 16. They divide the community, verse 19. And they are destined to come under God's judgment, Jude says. And Jude's concern is for those who have been influenced by these teachers. Thus the seriousness of the letter. So here we see our 25 verses of uh, Jude outline the salutation in the first two verses, chapters, or verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I'm very eager to write to you, I think this is funny, Uh, Jude says, Beloved, I'm very eager to write to you about our common salvation. So he wants to write something good, you know, and encourage them. But he says, I found it necessary to write to you to contend for the faith. He said, so I wanted to write to you about one thing, but I'm writing to you about another thing. Uh, For certain people, verse 4 says, certain people have crept in unnoticed who were long ago designated for this condemnation. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny the only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Um, So that's the purpose of the letter. In verses 5 through 7, he gives three warning examples. Uh, He gives three examples of God's judgment. He gives the Israelites in the desert, uh, angels. And the interesting interesting thing about Jude is he kind of takes uh, some stories that we don't find in our Old Testament. He takes them from other Jewish apocalyptic writings of his day. Um, So we see that. Uh, and, And he uses Sodom and Gomorrah. So he uses the illustration of God's judgment on the Israelites, God's judgment on angels, and God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And he uses these three examples for two purposes. 
one, to warn, to, to warn the readers about the false teachers and to point to the certain judgment on false teachers, that if God did this in the Old Testament on those who were false teachers and ungodly and disobedient, then these false teachers shouldn't think that they would get away with anything as well. Uh, verses 8 through 10, uh, we have another example um, or emphasis of the false teacher's rejection of authority for their own licentious way. Uh, he gives an example uh, from a Jewish apocalyptic work, which is the Assumption of Moses. Um, that's when he talks about in verse number 9. In verse number 9 of Jude, if you look in your scriptures, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe unto them. So we know that God took and buried the body of Moses somewhere where nobody could find it. But we're not told in the Old Testament about this story of the archangel Michael contending with the devil over the body of Moses. That's not found in the Old Testament, but it's taken from an extra-biblical writing called uh, The Ascension or The Assumption of Moses, um, which is other Jewish literature, uh, this one of the early 1st century A.D. So he takes, as a Jew would, he takes these other writings and mentions about that to make his point about the false teachers. Uh, in verses 11 through 16... On our next slide, he gives further warnings and examples. Again, in terms of three Old Testament examples, and there would four examples from everyday life and nature, citing from another Jewish apocalyptic work, which is First Enoch, as to their certain judgment. Um, concludes with a final description of their ungodly lifestyle. 17 through 19, we have the apostolic warning. Uh, that Jude's final indictment of the false teachers comes from apostolic prophecy. Uh, the call to persevere, verse 20 through 23. Let's read verse 20, Jude, verse 20. But you, beloved, building up yourselves in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. So he gives the call to persevere and how they are to live and help others. Then he ends, that's their emphasis in verses 20 through 23. That's what the believers are supposed to do. And then he says in verse 24, this is the emphasis on God. It says in verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. So he gives them to do, and he says, you can trust God. He's the one that's able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless. Before we leave Jude, let's look at this last page that we have. And here we see, this is why these two are read together. Because if you see this chart on your paper, this chart is comparison of the false teachers in 2 Peter and Jude. And you will see the comparison to each one of them. And there are so many. I mean, to be two small books, they certainly have a whole lot in common. Uh, so you see some of these. They both secretly bring in heresy 
and Jude, they crept in unnoticed. Uh, In Peter, their condemnation was pronounced long ago. In Jude, they were long ago destined for condemnation. In 2 Peter, the way of truth was maligned. In Jude, they perverted the gospel of grace. 2 Peter, they had licentious ways. Jude, they were licentious. 2 Peter, they denied even the master. Jude, they deny our master. 2 Peter talks about the angels kept in chains in deep darkness until judgment. In Jude, angels kept in chains in deep darkness for judgment. In 2 Peter, Sodom and Gomorrah is used as an example. In Jude, Sodom and Gomorrah is used as an example. In 2 Peter, they have depraved lust. In Jude, they have unnatural lust. In 2 Peter, they indulge their flesh, despise authority, and slander the glorious ones. In Jude, they defile the flesh, reject authority, slander the glorious ones. In 2 Peter, uh, he talks about the angels do not bring a slanderous judgment. In Jude, the archangel did not bring a condemnation of slander. Uh, In 2 Peter, they slander what they do not know. In Jude, they slander what they do not understand. In 2 Peter, they're like irrational Animals, creatures of instinct, and they will be destroyed. In Jude, irrational animals live by instinct and are to be destroyed. Second Peter, they are accursed children. Jude, woe unto them is pronounced. In Second Peter, they follow the way of Balaam, who was condemned for his greed. Um, in Jude, they abandon themselves to Balaam's error. In Second Peter, there are wages of wrongdoing. In Jude, they have error for the sake of gain. Uh, in 2 Peter, the blemishes in your feast. Jude, blemishes on your love feast. 2 Peter, they revel while they feast with you. Jude, they feast with you without fear. 2 Peter, they're like waterless springs. Jude, they're like waterless clouds. In 2 Peter, they are like mist driven by the storm. And Jude, they are clouds carried along by the winds. In 2 Peter, deepest darkness is reserved for them. In Jude, deepest darkness is reserved for them. Uh, Second Peter, bombastic, entice people. Jude, bombastic, flatter people. Uh, Second Peter, remember the commandments spoken through the apostles. Uh, in Jude, he re- calls them to remember the predictions of the apostles. And in Second Peter, in the last days, scoffers will come and indulge their own lust. And in Jude, in the last time, scoffers will come indulging their own lust. Uh, so it can't get any more plain than that of how these false teachers are uh, you know, described in Second Peter and in Jude, uh, which is why we will present these together. So these books, uh, I mean, they're very occasional of what's going on in the lives of these believers to warn them about these false teachings and to encourage them to faithful, uh, godly living. And that's what we can pull from these two books. Uh, again, there's a lot of details, but I think the main topic is very clear. Uh, That is the warning against the false teachers and how we are to live as the people of God, rejecting the false teachers and living in the light of the Holy Spirit.